Well, this evening, I want us to think about the scandal of Christmas, the scandal of Christmas. History records some amazing misjudgments. There's people who have written off inventions. Famously, Western Union had a memo in 1876 which said, uh, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. Or again, Ken Olson, president of Digital Equipment Corp of 1977 said this, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Others have made stunning misjudgments of people. Uh, A Munich schoolmaster to Albert Einstein, age 10, you will never amount to very much. And this next one is my personal favorite. Uh, John Hunt, a uh, 19th century artist, said this, Rembrandt is not to be compared in the painting of character with our extraordinarily gifted English artist, Mr. Rippingill. (laughs) I'm going to find a lot of people who love Mr. Rippingill now, but no one's ever heard of him. And most famously, uh, Dick Rowe of Decca Records turned away an unknown band called The Beatles with these words, we don't like their sound, groups of guitars are on the way out. But of all the misjudgments of history, none can be greater than the one recorded by Mark in chapter 6 of his gospel account. And so I'd encourage you to grab hold of your Bibles, uh, church Bibles here, you'll find this on page 1008, page 1008. It is an unusual carol service reading, but hang in there and it should become evident, I hope. So you'll find this on page 1008, Mark chapter 6. Now we believe that this Bible is God's word. And if you want God to speak to you, why don't you bow your head and let's pray before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to already sing your praises as we've reflected on the incidents of that uh, Christmas night and the events around the coming of your Son. And so we want to thank you that we have your word in our hands. And our prayer is that you would help each one of us to understand what is here. You would open our eyes open our ears, open our hearts to understand its message and that we may forever be changed. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in a synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only In his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. 
This, I want to suggest to you, is the greatest misjudgment in history. And I think there is a real possibility that we can make the same mistake this Christmas. Jesus had returned to his hometown in Nazareth. He'd been making a huge impact all around Israel. Crowds had been flocking for hundreds of miles just to see Jesus, to hear him preach, to hopefully get healed by him of their diseases. And now uh, this famous preacher has returned with his disciples to his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. And I want to make just two simple points this evening. The first thing is this. God's truth normally comes to us through a preacher. God's truth normally comes to us through a preacher. We ought not to think that, of God speaking uh, into the world in strange and bizarre ways, like dreams and visions or lights or voices from heaven. God is able to do that, of course. He's done it in the past. But we should not think that as the normal way. The normal way for God to speak to us today is through preachers. Preachers who faithfully proclaim God's word rather than their own agenda. And Mark, uh, if you look uh, through chapter 6, Mark tells three stories about people preaching. There's Jesus himself here in 1 to 6. And then the next verse is Jesus sending out the, uh, the 12 apostles who go around Israel to preach. And then Mark goes on from verse 14 and gives a flashback to the story of another great preacher, the greatest Old Testament preacher ever, John the Baptist. And what links all these three stories together is the probability that when preachers uh, proclaim God's word, they will be rejected. That's what links it together. The whole chapter makes this point that we reject God and we reject his king by rejecting his messengers. Now, it's very easy to be deceived on this. It's very easy to be self-deceived. I would imagine that probably every person in that synagogue that Sabbath were believers in God. Wouldn't you think? And if you ask them afterwards, are you anti-God? They would be appalled. They would be shocked that you should say such a question. They'd be horrified. We haven't turned our backs on God, they would have said. Uh, we, we would not refuse to listen to God. But when God's son stood in the pulpit that day, they did refuse to listen to him. Here was God's ultimate messenger to them, and they rejected him. Now, when it comes to the royal family, it seems that you can uh, criticize a lot of the royal family, but you don't really criticize the queen. But when people want to criticize the queen, what they do is they criticize the, the monarch's advisors. They say, oh, she was very poorly advised in that decision. You don't go for the jugular. You, you just criticize those who, who speak for her. Well, it's the same in the spiritual realm. It's, it's exactly the same. Not many will speak openly against God. There's a growing number who write in lots of books. But there's not many out there really who will speak openly against God. But our opposition to God is shown in this way. We reject those who faithfully preach his truth. On the last day, the verdict will be a simple one. God will say to many in Edinburgh and to uh, this nation of the United Kingdom, you never listened to me. You turned a deaf ear to me. 
But when did you speak, Lord? I wasn't conscious of turning a deaf ear. And the Lord will say, well, I sent preachers to your town. I put people in the pulpits of your churches who spoke my word, and you did not listen. The Bible is very clear. You see, faith comes from hearing the word of God. If we never listen to the word of God, we will never know whom to trust. We will never believe if we never hear the messengers that God sends. Here were immensely privileged people, were they not? In Nazareth, they had come to the synagogue on their Sabbath, and there Jesus himself was preaching. And astonishingly, they turned away from him. Now, why was that? Well, my second point this evening is this. God's truth comes to us in ways that scandalize us. God's truth comes to us in ways that scandalize us. Look at this word in verse 3. They took offense at him. The word literally means scandalized. They were scandalized by Jesus. Look at verse 2. They were astonished at his teaching. His, his words were full of wisdom and truth. They'd never heard such amazing power and clarity. They had no doubt about the reports of his mighty works. Uh, there was no doubt they were true. They were just simply too much evidence. But they quickly took offense at Jesus because he was just too ordinary. Verse 2, when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. They don't even refer to him by name. Jesus grew up in this town. They, they can name all his brothers and sisters. Where did this man get this? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? I mean, really? Where does he get all these big ideas about himself? Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? He's getting ideas above his station in life, isn't he? He was a common laborer. He's the village handyman. He put in my kitchen units. Isn't this Mary's son? Now, I want to tell you that the, con the contempt here grows even greater. Sons were always identified by their fathers, not their mothers, even when the father was dead. Uh, Garrison Keillor is an American writer. He, do, he does this radio show every week in the States. He's written some very humorous books called The Lake Wobegon Stories, and he writes stories of this little town. And uh, he often says in his books that uh, there aren't many secrets in small towns. Maybe you've grown up in a town like that. There aren't many secrets in small towns. Oh, they remember the morning sickness before Mary got officially married. Here was a dig at both his mother and at him for being an illegitimate baby. They were scathing in the offense that they took. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. God's truth often comes to us in a way that scandalizes us. And that's quite a hard thing to do in this culture. 
and yet the truth of Jesus still is a scandal. Here's three illustrations of that. Firstly, the scandal of the incarnation. A long time ago now, June Osborne had a number one hit single where she sang this question, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Now, I would really struggle to use the word slob. But, you know, for about 30 years of his life, you could have walked through Nazareth and you'd seen this handyman working away and you wouldn't have looked twice. He was just a regular guy. That was the problem in Nazareth. He was just too ordinary. And yet here is God becoming one of us. Christmas is the celebration of God becoming a man. And it really causes one of two responses, either worship or offense. And the fact of history is still a scandal to many today. This is not religion, how we would have planned it. Surely, if God is to visit uh, earth, it must be as a glorious being, someone like a glorious angel with a, with a huge halo, someone with overwhelming power. And what did we get when God came? We got a whimpering infant, a helpless baby. The contrast is just, is just too great doesn't make any kind of sense to us almighty god who made the universe sitting as a baby in his mother's lap listen again to those words are read to us earlier from isaiah the prophet written 700 years before for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace to some, a source of wonder and worship, and to others, just a total scandal. The truth is that the majority of theological departments in the universities of the UK, the professors have moved towards basically being Unitarian. Jesus is just a, a great man, perhaps even the most wonderful man in the world, who uh, gave us an interesting window into God, but not actually God, not what we've sung today, true God from true God. What do you think of Jesus? See, incredibly, that day in the synagogue, by rejecting Jesus as he preached, they were rejecting God come in human flesh. What a colossal mistake. I don't know a mistake that compares to that. But the scandal of Jesus extends beyond his humble entrance into the world. Here's a second illustration, the scandal of the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, a scandal is the word, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Imagine this, a man hanging naked on the cross, beaten, bloody, utterly deserted by friends. What's happening here? Well, the Bible says, here is the moment of Jesus' victory. Satan is being disarmed. The sins of the world are being taken away. Your sins, my sins, if we trust Jesus. God is being reconciled to his creatures. God's kingdom is being opened to all believers. Death is being conquered. And to those who are being saved, this is the event of greatest wonder and joy, that God the Son was willing to die in my place. 
that this moment of great weakness and humiliation is the greatest act of, of God's wisdom and power and salvation. But of course, this is a scandal to many. It's a scandal to Islam. It's a scandal to many other religious people that the answer to human need is being met in Jesus and in Him alone. Well, that's outrageous. That in the cross of Jesus, there is our only hope. Is that what you're saying? God's truth is especially offensive to religious people who want to be right with God on their own terms. Here's a third illustration, the scandal of trust in Christ. You might want to turn to this. It's page 11. Keep your finger in, in Mark 6 and turn to page 1137. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 32, page 1137. Uh, Paul is wondering why the people that he loved so much, his own Jewish race, did not try to get right with God by trusting Jesus, while the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles that he was preaching to, so readily trusted Christ. And, and, and here's his answer in verse 32 there, at the top of the page on the left-hand side. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. There's the scandal again, the scandal that we are made right with God, not by our good works, but by trusting Jesus alone. Here's the final scandal of Jesus. We are not saved by our good works. The most popular religious view today is a heresy. And it goes something like this, that we stand on our own feet before God, on our own track record of sincerity. You see, as long as I'm sincere, I'll be okay with God. That we'll get to heaven basically because we deserve it, because we're not really that bad. The idea of hell is unthinkable in our culture today because surely God can see we've done our best and surely that should be enough. That's what people often say. And when they have been pushed to think about the gospel, they retreat to statements like this. I've always done my best. I've never harmed anyone. What a tragic theology to stand before God at the end of time. And all we have to say to him is, well, I've always done my best. Because the truth is, we all know it is a lie. We have not done our best. None of us have lived a blameless life. We have all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. We are not saved by our works, but by faith in Jesus. You see, this Christmas, all men and women and boys and girls need to do is to put our empty hands to God and ask for his salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, and he will grant it. People could enter 2010 as brand new people. This is the wonder and joy of Christmas. A Savior has been born for us. A Savior who died for us. But people reject it. It's a scandal to many. They would rather work at it themselves. And that's why this response at Nazareth is so tragic. Turn back to page 1008 there on Mark chapter 6. Page 1008, Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 5. 
there are consequences to rejection of Jesus. He could do, he could not do any miracle there. Well, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I mean, those are minor miracles, nothing really major there. But he couldn't do anything really serious, just a few healings. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He marveled at their unbelief. They missed out, didn't they? In Nazareth. They failed to experience the saving power of Jesus in their town and in their lives because of their unbelief. And I want to say to you tonight, don't do that this Christmas. It would be the costliest mistake we could ever make. It is the most tragic misjudgment we could ever make in our lives. To reject Jesus is to reject God. To reject Jesus is to reject the only way that our sins can be forgiven. That to, to, to go off and think that, well, I can work at my own salvation is a travesty and a tragedy and a false delusion. It is only by relying on what Jesus has done for us on the cross can we be made right with God, can we have our sins be forgiven, can we be saved. Can I urge you this night not to do that? Now, I, my guess is that this evening there's a, there's a whole range of responses here. Um, you know, on one end of the line, there'll be some people here who've, who've been Christians for many decades. And uh, if we had the time, we could get them up one by one. You could hear about uh, what it means to them to have trusted Jesus over these many years and, and, and know his grace in their lives and know his forgiveness. And maybe there are other people here. Maybe this is the first church service you've ever been to. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard any of this. And, and you're kind of scandalized and you're thinking, What? Is he for real? I, I got so many questions. Well, we want to encourage you to think about this course starting on Monday, uh, the 18th of January. It's called Glad You Asked. It's an opportunity for you to ask the questions you might want to ask. Uh, each night we'll be tackling some of the big questions that people do ask. And uh, why not come along and investigate some more about the Christian faith? You'd be most welcome. I mean, where are you on the line today? brand new person, never heard it before, somebody who's, who's been trusting Jesus all your life, where, where, where are you on the line? Where, where are you? Are you about here? Are you about here? I wonder, maybe there's some people here tonight, and, and you know it's true. And I don't know what's been holding you back, but maybe tonight it's as if you've heard it for the first time, and it's, and it's become really clear to you. And I want to give you an opportunity before you head out into a snowy, treacherous road to get right with God. And uh, there's a prayer I'm going to put up here. Maybe you can have a look at this prayer. You could use this prayer to get right with God tonight. Let me just tell you what the prayer is. You can see if you want to pray it. It's pointless saying words that you don't mean. It's saying to God that you're sorry that you have rejected him and his word for so long. It's thanking him for sending his son to die for your sins and to give you new life through his resurrection. And it's saying, please, please forgive me for my many sins. Please change me. I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Maybe there's a number of people tonight who want to come and get right with God. Let's bow our heads. And I'm going to pray this and give you a gap to be able to pray these words in your own heart and mind to God as your response to him this evening. Heavenly Father, 
I'm so sorry that I've been rejecting you and your word. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. And through his resurrection, give me new life. Please forgive me for my many sins. Please change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler.